from Timothy Dwight's Theology. Timothy Dwight, the late president of Yale College. Evidences of Regeneration. What are not evidences? Sermon 1. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? Having in a long series of discourses considered the doctrine of regeneration, its antecedents, attendance, and consequence, I shall now proceed to another interesting subject of theology, the evidences of regeneration. In the text, the Apostle commands the Corinthian Christians to examine and prove themselves, and states the purposes of this examination to be to determine whether they were in the faith. He then inquires of them, Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? In the original, except ye be unapproved, unable to endure the trial of such an examination. From this passage of Scripture, it is plain that it was the duty of the Corinthians to examine themselves concerning their Christian character, and that this examination was to be pursued by them so thoroughly as to prove so far as might be whether they were or were not in the faith, whether Christ did or did not dwell in them by his Holy Spirit. That which was the duty of the Corinthians is the duty of all other Christians. That which is the duty of all Christians, it is the duty of every minister to aid them in performing. To unfold the evidences of religion in the heart is therefore at times the duty of every minister, and to learn them that of every Christian. In attempting to perform this duty at the present time, I shall endeavor to point out first some of the imaginary evidences of religion, two, some of its real evidences, and thirdly, some of the difficulties which attend the application of the real evidences of religion to ourselves. First, I shall endeavor to point out some of the imaginary evidences of religion. By imaginary evidences, I intend those which are sometimes supposed to be proofs of its existence, but have this character through mistake only. Evidences which may be, and often are, found in the hearts and lives both of saints and the sinner. Things on which it is dangerous to rely, because they do not evince in any degree either a holy or an unholy character. It will not be expected that I should enter into a minute and detailed account of a subject which has occupied formal treatises and field volumes. Considerations of particular importance can alone find a place in such a system of discourses. To them, therefore, I shall confine myself, and even these I must necessarily discuss in a summary manner. With these preliminary remarks, I observe, first, that nothing in the time, place, manner, or other circumstances of a supposed conversion furnishes ordinarily any solid evidence that it is or is not real. It is not uncommon for persons and for Christians among others to dwell both in their thoughts and conversation on these subjects and to believe that they furnish them with comforting proofs of their piety. Some persons rest not a little on their consciousness of the time at which they believe themselves to have turned to God. So confident are they with regard to this subject that they boldly appeal to it in their conversation with others as evidence of their regeneration.
So many years since, one of them will say, my heart closed with Christ. Christ was discovered to my soul. The arm of mercy laid hold on me. I was stopped in the career of iniquity. I received totally new views of divine things. Much other language of a similar nature is used by them, all of which rests, ultimately, on their knowledge of the time in which they suppose themselves to have become the subjects of the renewing grace of God. There is reason to believe, derived, however, from other sources, that these apprehensions may sometimes be founded in truth. In other instances, there is abundant proof that they are founded in falsehood. But that which may easily be either false or true, as in the present case it plainly may, can never safely be made the ground of reliance, especially in a concern of such moment. Other persons appeal with some confidence to the manner and circumstances of their supposed conversion as evidences of its reality. Thus one recites with much reliance the strong convictions of sin under which he was distressed for a length of time, the deep sense which he had of deserving the anger and punishment of God, his disposition readily to acknowledge the justice of the divine law in condemning him, and of the divine government in punishing him, his full belief that he was among the worst of sinners in the state of despair to which he was brought under the apprehension of his guilt. Of all these things, it may be observed that, although convictions of sin, generally of the nature here referred to, always precede regeneration, yet in whatever form or degree they exist, they are not regeneration. They cannot, therefore, be proofs of regeneration. He who has them, in whatever manner he has them, will, if he proceed no further, be still in the gull of bitterness. But the same person perhaps goes on further and declares that while he was in the situation of distress, when he was ready to give up himself for lost, God discovered himself to him as a reconciled God, and filled his mind with new, sudden, and unspeakable joy, that he had a strong and delightful sense of the divine mercy in Jesus Christ, of the wonderful compassion of Christ, in consenting to die for sinners, in being willing to accept of sinners, and particularly in being willing to accept a so great a sinner as himself, that he found his heart going forth in love to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, to the word and ordinances of God, and to the church of Christ, and that the state of mind was new to him being constituted of emotions which he never felt before. On these things, therefore, he reposes as supporting evidences that he is a Christian. All of this is, in my own view, a just account of what really takes place in the conversion of multitudes, and did it exist in no other case when undoubtedly furnished the very evidence he relied on without any sufficient warrant. The defect in the scheme lies in the fact that these very emotions are experienced by multitudes who are not Christians. That a person who has been the subject of extreme distress under conviction of sin and the fear of perdition should, whenever he begins to hope that his sins are forgiven and his soul secured from destruction, experience lively emotions of joy is to be expected as a thing of course, and that, whether his hopes are evangelical or false. 
all men must rejoice in their deliverance from destruction, whether truly or erroneously believed by them, and all men who have had a distressing sense of their guilt and danger will, under a sense of such a deliverance, experience intense emotions of joy. All men also who really believe that God has become their friend will love him. All will love the word of God who consider it as speaking peace and salvation to themselves. This joy and this love, it is evident, are merely natural and are felt, of course, by every mistaking professor of religion. Love to God and to divine things is a delight in the nature of these objects, independently of any personal benefit to which we feel entitled from them. Another person places confidence in the greatness of the effects which his sense of sin and his hope of forgiveness produce both on his body and mind. He will inform you with plain consolation to himself that his distressing apprehensions of his guilt sunk him in the dust and caused him to cry out involuntarily, deprived him of his strength and for a time perhaps of the clear exercise of his reason, caused him to swoon and almost terminated his life. Much the same effects he will also observe were produced in him by his consequent discoveries of the divine mercy. These overwhelmed him with transport as his convictions did with agony. The extraordinary nature and especially the extraordinary degree of these emotions furnishes this man with the most consolatory proof that he is a child of God. On this I shall only observe that as these emotions may be and often are excited by natural as well as evangelical causes, so when thus excited they may exist in any supposable degree. The agonies and the transports, the agitations of body and of mind prove indeed the intensity of the feelings experienced, but they do not in the least degree exhibit either their nature or their cause and cannot therefore be safely relied on as evidences of religion. A third person will tell you that while he was in a state of absolute carelessness and going on headlong in sin, he was suddenly alarmed concerning his guilt and danger by a passage of scripture which came to his mind in a moment, without any thought or contrivance of his own, and perhaps that, after he had long worried himself to find an escape from the wrath of God, another text of scripture, also without any contrivance of his own, came as suddenly to his mind conveying to him bright views of the divine mercy and glorious promises of salvation. The reliance of this man is placed especially on the fact that these texts came to his mind without any effort on his part, either to remember or to search after them. He therefore concludes that they were communicated to him directly by the Spirit of God, and that they conveyed to him a direct personal promise of eternal life. This is mere delusion. Passages of Scripture, and those just such as here referred to, come often, suddenly, and without any labor of theirs, to the minds of multitudes who are not Christians. And God is no more immediately concerned in bringing them to the mind in this case than when we read them in the Bible or hear them from the desk. What God speaks in the Bible, He always speaks and speaks to us, but He addresses nothing to us when we remember any more than when we read or hear his words. If we rely on the true import of what he says, we rely with perfect safety, but if we place any importance on the mode in which at any time that which is said comes to our minds, we deceive ourselves.
The whole of our recollection in these cases is a merely natural process and is the result of that association of ideas by which memory is chiefly governed and which brings to our remembrance in the very same manner thousands of other things, as well as these texts of Scripture, of which, however, as being of little importance to us, we take no notice. Other persons depend much on the regularity of the process with which their distresses and consolations have existed, and in the conformity of them to such a scheme and history of these things, as they have found in books or received from the mouth of acknowledged and eminent Christians. In the Sermon on the Antecedents of Regeneration, I observe that this work is in its process almost endlessly various. But in whatever manner it exists, the manner itself is of no consequence. Should we have exactly the same succession of distresses and consolations experienced by ever so many of the most distinguished saints, and yet our affections, instead of being evangelical, be merely natural, the order of their existence could never prove that we were Christians, for we should still be sinners. The nature of these affections, and not the order, is a great concern of all our self-examination. Secondly, zeal in the cause of religion is no evidence that we are or are are not Christians. Men, we all know, are capable of exercising zeal in any case in proportion to the degree of interest which they feel in that case. We also know that there is a zeal which is not according to knowledge. All persons naturally ardent become zealous about everything in which they are once engaged, and especially when they are opposed. Christians are zealous in the cause of religion, deists and atheists in the cause of infidelity, Jews in that of Judaism, heathens in that of idolatry. The Ephesians were zealous for the worship of the great goddess Diana, Paul and his companions for that of the true God, the Anabaptists at Munster for the wild reveries taught by their leaders, and thus concerning innumerable others. Nothing is more evident than that zeal was not in most of these cases any proof of piety in those by whom it was exercised. Is zeal itself, so the degree in which it exists is no proof of vital religion. There have been multitudes of persons whose zeal has prompted them to court persecution. It is not uncommon for members of small and despised sects to believe that the sufferance of persecution is a decisive characteristic of the true church of God, and to solicit it is decisive evidence that they themselves are members of this church. With these views, they sedulously construe all the kinds and degrees of opposition which they meet into persecution. In this manner, they regard the sober argumentation with which their opinions are refuted, the most dispassionate exposures of their folly and their faults, the most just operations of law, directed either against their crimes or to the preservation of the rights of others, Nay, nay, even that abstinence from communion with them in their worship, and that refusal to further their designs which they on their own part claim as indefeasible rights of man. Such persons ought to remember that all or nearly all classes of Christians, even those whom they most oppose, nay, that infidels and atheists have been persecuted, and that the modern Jews have been more persecuted than any other sect, party, or people now in existence. The sufferance of persecution, therefore, is no proof that we belong to the true church. Still more ought they to remember that Paul has said, Though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing.
thirdly, no exactness in performing the external duties of religion furnishes any evidence that we are or are not Christians. Few persons have been more exact in this respect than the ancient Pharisees. Yet Christ has testified of them that they were a generation of vipers. Under the Christian dispensation, great multitudes of the Roman Catholics, notoriously profligate in many parts of their conduct, have in various periods of popery been remarkably punctilious in the performance of these duties. That which was no evidence of Christianity in them cannot be evidence of Christianity in ourselves. Many persons are exacting this conduct from the influence of education and example, many from habit, many from the desire of religious distinction, many because they think this conduct a proof of their piety and are uneasy without such proof, many because they think themselves in this way only in the safe path to salvation, and many from other selfish reasons. In all these things, considered by themselves, there is no religion. Of course, a conduct to which they give birth cannot be evidential of religion. Fourthly, no exactness in performing those which are frequently called moral duties furnishes any evidence of this nature. Multitudes of mankind place great confidence in their careful performance of these external duties as being evidential of their evangelical character, just as other multitudes do in those mentioned under the preceding head and with no better foundation. Justice, truth, and kindness in their various branches and operations are so important and useful to mankind that we all readily agree in giving them high distinction in the scale of moral characteristics. Those who practice them uniformly and extensively are universally considered as benefactors to the world and as invested with peculiar amiableness and worth. Those who violate them, on the other hand, are, from the mischiefs which they produce, regarded as enemies and nuisances to the human race. At the same time, a high degree of importance is given to these duties in the scriptures. They are greatly insisted on in the gospel, inculcated in many forms of instruction, commended in the most forcible language, and encouraged by most interesting promises. The violation of them is condemned and threatened in the most pungent terms and right. under the most glowing images. It cannot be surprising that, influenced by these considerations, parents should make these duties a prime part of their instructions and precepts to their children. But when we remember that the practice of them has in all ages and in all civilized countries been considered as equally and as indispensably necessary to a fair reputation and to success in the common business of life, we shall readily suppose that these must be among the first things imbibed by the early mind from parental superintendence and must hold a peculiar importance in all the future thoughts of the man. Thus taught and thus imbibed, we should naturally expect to see them practiced during the progress of life, as extensively as can consist with the imperfect character of human beings. When thus practiced, and especially when eminently practiced, we cannot wonder to find those whose lives they adorn regarded as persons of real virtue and excellence. What less can be expected? These are the very actions towards our fellow creatures required by God himself, and dictated by evangelical virtue, a part of the very fruits by which the Christian character is to be known. 
why isn't he who exhibits them a Christian? Oftentimes also they appear with high advantage in the conduct of persons, distinguished by natural sweetness of disposition, peculiar decency of character, amiableness of life, indignity or gracefulness of manners, and thus become delightful objects to the eye and excite the warmest commendations of the tongue. It is not strange, therefore, that they should have gained a high and established reputation, and should be extensively regarded as unequivocal proofs of an excellent character. What others so generally attribute to them we not unnaturally accord with, whenever our own case is concerned. In finding that we are believed by others to be Christians on account of our good works of this nature, readily believe ourselves to possess the character. We are esteemed, loved, and commended by those around us, and cannot easily believe that the worth which they attribute to us is all imaginary. Still, such a performance of these duties furnishes no proof that we are Christians, for in the first place they may be and often are all performed from the very motives mentioned under the last head as being frequently the sources of exactness in the external duties of religion. Secondly, they are often performed by men who violate extensively or grossly neglect the duties of piety and temperance and who therefore are certainly not Christians. Thirdly, they appear to have been all performed with uncommon exactness by the young man who came to Christ to inquire what good thing he should do to have eternal life, yet he lacked one thing, and that was the one thing needful. Fifthly, no degree of sorrow or comfort or fear or hope experienced by any person about his religious concerns at seasons succeeding the time of his supposed conversion furnish any evidence of this nature. Sorrow springs from many sources beside a sense of our sins, and from such a sense it may be derived and yet not be the sorrow which is after a godly sort. We may easily and greatly sorrow for our sins because we consider them as exposing us to the anger of God and to everlasting ruin. Our comforts also may flow from other sources besides those which are evangelical. Some persons derive great consolation and even exquisite joy from a belief in that whether well or ill-founded of their acceptance with God, some from the apprehension that they are eminent Christians, some from the unexpected influx of religious thoughts and passages of Scripture coming suddenly into their minds, some from what they esteem peculiar tokens of divine goodness to them, tokens which they regard as proofs of the peculiar love and favor of God, some from what they term peculiar discoveries of the glory of God and the excellency of the Redeemer and of the joys of the blessed in heaven. All these they consider as immediately communicated by God to themselves because they are his favorites among mankind. There are, there are also other states of mind in which consolations are experienced from other sources, consolations which may exist in high degrees, but which are too numerous to be mentioned at the present time. What is true of the sorrows and comforts excited by religious considerations is substantially true of the kindred emotions of fear and hope. These can also arise both from true and false apprehensions, and can be either merely natural or wholly evangelical, or of a mixed nature. 
as they actually exist in the minds of men, they are, to say the least, often undistinguished as to their real nature by those in whom they exist, and are, I believe, many times in a great measure undistinguishable. Their existence is so transient, they are frequently mingled with so many other views and emotions, and the eye of the mind is often so engaged by the objects which give birth to them that it becomes extremely difficult to fasten upon their true character. Sixthly, no evidence of our sanctification is furnished by our own confidence. The truth of this declaration may be easily seen in the fact that multitudes feel the utmost confidence that they are Christians who afterwards prove by their conduct that they are destitute of Christianity. All enthusiasts usually confide with undoubting assurance in the reality of their own religion and generally pity and often despise men of a humbler and better spirit because they do not enjoy such peculiar discoveries, such delightful exercises of devotion, such bright hopes and heavenly anticipations of future glory as of themselves. The Pharisees boldly said, God, I think thee that I am not as other men, or even as this publican. Yet he was a worse man than the publican. A collection of the Pharisees said to Christ, Are we blind also? I propose hereafter to consider at some length what is commonly called the faith of assurance. It will be sufficient to observe at the present time that I believe some men to be really and evangelically thus assured. If this be admitted as it undoubtedly will be by the great body of Christians, it follows, of course, that confidence on our good estate is no proof that we are not Christians. A man may confide with sufficient evidence, he may also confide without it. It is plain, therefore, that his confidence, considered by itself, furnishes no proof that it is well or ill-founded. I cannot, however, do justice to my own views, nor as I believe to the subject, without observing here that in ordinary cases I entertain a better opinion of the modest, doubting, fearful professor than of the bold and assured one. The life of the former, as it seems to me, is commonly at least more watchful, more careful, more self-condemning, more scrupulous concerning the commission of sin and the omission of duty, more indicative of dependence on God, more inclined to esteem others better than himself, more declaratory of the spirit of little children." The spirit of the latter, even when he is admitted to be a Christian, appears to me to be often fraught in an unhappy degree with self-exaltation, with censoriousness as well as contempt of those who differ from him, with uncharitableness, with peremptoriness of opinion, and with an unwarrantable assurance of the rectitude of whatever he believes, says, or does. These certainly are not favorable specimens of any character." I would be far from ultimately condemning the profession of all those in whom these things are more or less visible, yet I assert without hesitation that their light would shine more clearly before men were it not obscured by these clouds. It is not the degree of confidence, but the source whence it is derived and the objects on which it rests by which its nature and import are to be determined. It may exist in the highest degree without any religion, and religion may exist in very high degrees at least without any confidence. Seventhly, 
the belief of others that we are Christians furnishes no proof of our Christianity. All persons who make a profession of religion, and many who do not, whose lives at the same time are exemplary, scrupulous and unblameable, are by most charitable persons believed to be Christians. Some of these, however, beyond any reasonable doubt, are not Christians. Some we know to have lived in this manner and to have sustained this character both in ancient and modern times without a pretension to vital religion. Judas was believed by his fellow apostles for a length of time and not improbably without a single doubt to be a true follower of Christ. Hymenaeus and Philetus appear to have sustained the same character, and apparently with as little foundation. All of these were believed to be Christians by apostles, inspired men, a singular understanding in subjects of this nature, yet these men were deceived. No words are necessary to prove that we and all others are liable to deception in similar cases. If the belief of Peter and Paul that the objects of their charity in the cases specified were Christians was no evidence of their Christianity, then the belief of others that we are Christians is no evidence of our Christianity. Application From these observations we learn first that we ought to exercise the utmost care and caution in examining the evidences of our own religion. How many professors of Christianity have considered the things which I have specified as decisive proofs that themselves were good men? Yet if I mistake not, it has been clearly shown that all of them united furnish no solid evidence of this fact. We are just as liable to be deceived as others, and unless peculiarly guarded by the very same means. Others have rested their hopes of salvation on these things as proof of their religious character, and have been deceived. If we rest on them, we shall be deceived also, for we may possess all these things and yet not be Christians." In a case of this moment, nothing ought voluntarily to be left at hazard. We are bound by our own supreme interest, as well as our duty to God, to fulfill the command of the text, to examine, and to prove ourselves whether we be in the faith, and in doing this, to make use of the best means in our power to fasten, with as much care as possible, on those things which the scriptures have made tests of a religious character, and earnestly to pray to God that we be not deceived either by ourselves or by any others. Secondly, from the same source we learn also the impropriety and folly of making these things a foundation of our judgment concerning the religious character of others. Whenever we determine that others are or are not Christians, because they exhibit these as evidences of their Christianity, we are plainly liable to gross error concerning this subject. All these things may be truly testified concerning himself by a Christian, and with equal truth by a person destitute of Christianity. They are, therefore, no proofs of his religion or irreligion. Still, a great multitude of professing Christians, many of whom I doubt not are really Christians, and all or nearly all enthusiastic professors make these very things, or the lack of them, the foundations of their favorable or unfavorable opinions of the religious character of others. They resort to them as to an acknowledged and scriptural standard which they do not expect to find disputed, and to question which would not improbably be regarded by them as a proof of irreligion. 
What is still more unhappy among various classes of Christians in this country, these very things, particularly those mentioned under the first ground and fifth heads of this discourse, are, if I am not misinformed, not infrequently made the objects of a public examination of candidates for admission to Christian communion, and the foundations of a public judgment concerning their religious character. To be able to remember the time when convictions of sin began, with their attendant distresses, and the time when they were followed by hopes, consolations, and joys, to have had these occasioned by the sudden, uncontrived, and unexpected influx of certain passages of Scripture into the mind, especially if according to a pre-established and acknowledged scheme of regeneration among themselves, these things have taken place in a certain order of succession, still more especially if the sorrow and consolations have risen very high, and most of all if they are succeeded by distinguished zeal about things pertaining to religion, are boldly pronounced ample evidence of the candidate's piety. In this manner there is reason to fear multitudes are miserably led astray, both by being induced beforehand to labor that these things may be truly said of themselves, and by settling down in a state of security on this false foundation afterwards. Nor is a case less unhappy when persons rest their hopes on their exactness in performing the external duties of religion and morality. Yet vast numbers of mankind repose themselves on these, as on a bed of down, and feel satisfied that God will not finally condemn persons who have labored so much in His service. All of them will, however, find in the end that to such as have done all this and nothing more, one thing is lacking, an interest in Christ, a thing without which they cannot be saved. Thirdly, we see the danger of being strongly confident in the piety of ourselves or others. All or nearly all such confidence, so far as I have observed, has been derived from these supposed evidences of religion, any part or the whole of which may be possessed by men totally destitute of Christianity. It is a fatal mark on them all that the scriptures have nowhere alleged them as proofs of religion. As they are not scriptural proofs, they cannot be sound. To trust in them is to trust in a nullity. Accordingly, those who give the fairest proofs of Christianity in their life and conversation never make these things the foundation of their hope, and are very rarely found to be strongly confident of their acceptance with God. To pronounce boldly that others are Christians is, in many cases at least, equally hazardous. There are many persons, however, who roundly declare others of whose lives they have had little or no knowledge to be Christians, and others not to be Christians, whose conduct and conversation give them at least as fair and often fairer claims to this character. Nay, they will peremptorily make these assertions concerning ministers of the gospel, and pronounce some to be sanctified and others unsanctified from a sermon or a prayer or even from the tones of voice with which they are uttered. Judge not, saith our Savior, that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Who art thou? Saith Paul, that judgest another man's servant, to his own master he standeth, or falleth. It is, it is sufficient to show the impropriety and rashness of these unwarrantable decisions, that they are founded on no scriptural or solid evidence. They are generally built on the very things exploded in this discourse, or others of still less importance, all of which, united, go not a single step towards proving a religious or an irreligious character.
the evidences of regeneration, what are real evidences? From the Theology of Timothy Dwight, 1818. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you except ye be reprobates? In the last discourse, I attempted to point out several things which furnish no real evidence of regeneration, although they have been supposed to furnish it by multitudes in the Christian world. I now propose to mention several other things which actually furnish such evidence. By all who believe the doctrine of regeneration is formally taught in these discourses, it must be admitted that the disposition communicated when this work is accomplished in us is new, and something which before did not exist in the soul. If it were the mere increase or some other modification of the former disposition, man could not be said to be born again, to be created anew, to be a new creature, to be renewed in the spirit of his mind. It could not be said by Paul concerning persons who were the subjects of regeneration that old things were passed away in them and that all things had become new. It must further be acknowledged that this new disposition is in its nature opposite to that which before existed in the mind. The former disposition is sin, condemned and punished by the law of God. The new disposition is holiness, required and rewarded by the same law. The former disposition is hateful in the sight of God, the new one lovely and of great price. The former disposition is frequently and justly styled selfishness, is being perpetually employed in subordinating the interests of any and all, others to the private personal interests of the individual in whom it prevails. The new disposition is with the same propriety styled disinterestedness, love, goodwill, benevolence, a spirit inclining him in whom it exists to subordinate with his own private interest to the general welfare and to find his own happiness and the common prosperity of the divine kingdom. The part, the place, and the enjoyments which God assigns to him as a member of this kingdom, he is inclined to take, not with submission only, but with cheerfulness, as being that which is ordered by infinite wisdom, and is therefore the best and most desirable. The new disposition is also opposed to the former, particularly as it regards our Maker. The former, or carnal mind, is enmity against God, opposed to his character and to his pleasure. The new one is conformed to his pleasure and delighted with his character. He in whom it exists delights in the law of God after the inner man, and esteems it as more to be chosen than the most fine gold, and sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. The former disposition is an impenitent devotion to sin, attended at times and after some of its grosser perpetrations by remorse, perhaps, and self-condemnation, but never by a real loathing of the sin itself, nor by that ingenuous sorrow for it which is after a godly sort. The new disposition is a real hatred of sin, a sincere, and if I may so term it, an instinctive sorrow for every transgression of the divine commands whenever such transgression is present to the view of the mind. The former disposition was a general spirit of unbelief or distrust 
towards God, his invitations, promises, and designs. A distrust, especially exercised towards the Redeemer and towards his righteousness, is a foundation of our acceptance with God. The new one is a humble, steadfast, affectionate confidence in God, his declarations and designs, exercised particularly towards Christ as the Savior of mankind, the propitiation for sin, and the true and living way to eternal glory. This confidence, or as it most usually is termed in the New Testament, this faith, is a vital principle in the soul, producing every act of real obedience, every act in man which is pleasing to God. In all these particulars, united, the new disposition is termed godliness, or piety. The former disposition is inclined to the indulgence of those lusts, or passions and appetites, which immediately respect ourselves, such as pride, vanity, sloth, lewdness, and intemperance. The new one is opposed to all these, is humble, modest, diligent, chaste, and temperate. In this view, it is styled temperance, moderation, or self-government. As in all these things, the spirit communicated in our regeneration not only differs so greatly from that which we possess by nature, but is so directly opposed to it, it must be admitted that, in all its operations, it carries with it some evidence of its existence, in the same manner as our sinful disposition carries with it evidence of its existence. He who denies that holiness in a renewed mind can be evidenced by its nature and operations must also deny either that in any moral character whatever can be perceived to exist, or that a holy disposition is capable of the same proof as a sinful one. That this is philosophy too unsound to be adopted by a sober man is so evident as to need no illustration. Indeed, it may be doubted whether any man will openly aver this doctrine, although multitudes assert that which involves it. Certainly a sinner who examines his own heart and life must discern that he is sinful. With equal certainty an angel must discern that he himself is holy. From what has been said of the nature of the renewed disposition, it is clear that the man who repents of his sins, who believes in Christ, who loves and fears God, who disinterestedly loves his neighbor and forgives his enemies, and who employs himself daily in resisting and subduing his own passions and appetites, must have some consciousness that he does these things. In this consciousness, as it continually rises up in the view of the mind, consists of primary or original evidence that we are Christians. Indeed, all the evidence of this nature which we ever possess is no other than this consciousness, variously modified and rendered more explicit and satisfactory by the aid of several things, with which from time to time it becomes connected. Having made these general observations, I shall proceed to state the following particulars in which I apprehend this evidence will be especially seen. First, the renewed mind relishes all spiritual objects. Every man knows what it is to relish natural objects such as agreeable food, ease, warmth, rest, friends, beauty, novelty, and grandeur. Every man knows that these objects are relished also in themselves for their own sake, as being in themselves pleasant to the mind, independently of consequences and of all other extraneous considerations. In the same manner, according to what is here intended, are spiritual objects relished by the renewed mind. 
A Christian regards the character of God, the character of Christ, the divine law, the gospel, and his own duty as objects pleasing in their own nature. Thus David, of the religious exercises of whose mind we have a more detailed account than we have of those of any other scriptural writer, says concerning the statutes of the Lord that they are right, rejoicing the heart, more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. And again, how sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. And again, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth whom I desire beside thee. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye upright in heart. With these expressions of David correspond all the declarations of the other divine writers wherever they are made. Thus Paul says, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Thus also the same apostle says, I delight in the law of the Lord after the inward man. This doctrine has been extensively illustrated in the sermon lately delivered on the subject of joy in the Holy Ghost and therefore will need the less illustration here. It ought, however, to be remembered that a delight in these things because of some benefit which we have or imagine ourselves to have derived from them, or which we hope to derive from them immediately, or from the relish of them, whether it be the favor of God, comforting evidence of our Christianity, or any other benefit whatever, is not the kind of relish of which I speak. This is directed towards the things themselves, as being in themselves delightful to the taste of the mind. If the character of God is excellent, it cannot but be supposed that this excellence must be relished by a person suitably disposed, and that although this person were to be ignorant of any manner in which he himself was to derive personal benefit from it. Wherever this relish exists, it will ordinarily show itself not only in the manner in which the mind immediately regards spiritual objects, but in its remoter operations. Thus, if a man really relishes the worship of God, he will be apt to regularly be employed in all its proper seasons. He will find himself inclined to ejaculatory prayer, to pray in his closet, in the family, and in the church. If he loves the scriptures, he will be apt to read them regularly, much, and often. If he relishes the company of religious persons, he will naturally frequent it, seek it, and derive from it when enjoyed a sensible pleasure. To secret prayer, there seems to be hardly any allurement sufficient to keep the regular practice of it alive for a great length of time, beside a relish for communion with God. It is plain that secret prayer cannot be continued with a view to be seen of men, or the hope of acquiring reputation. As in its own nature it cannot but be disrelished by every sinner, it seems as if it must, of course, be soon dropped where piety does not keep it alive. Thus Job seems to have reasoned when he said concerning the hypocrite, Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call upon God? Job 27.10 As if he had said, He will not delight himself in the Almighty, and therefore will not always or throughout life continue to pray to God, but will cease from this practice after the casual feelings and views which gave birth to it have ceased to operate. 
A continued relish for secret prayer furnishes, therefore, a strong and hopeful testimony that we are Christians. John informs us that the love of Christians also is a satisfactory proof that we are Christians. Hereby we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. It will be proper to observe that we are not in the present case supposed to love Christians because they are our personal friends or because they have been or are expected to be useful to us, but because they are Christians and on account of the excellence and amiableness of the Christian spirit which they possess and manifest. For this reason God loves them, that is, with a love usually termed complacency, and for this reason only since he can plainly receive no benefit from them. For the same reason they are loved by their fellow Christians. In order to know whether we love them, it will be proper to ask ourselves the questions mentioned in the discourse alluded to. Do we love their goodness of character? Do we seek their company? Do we relish their conversation? Do we take pleasure in their Christian conduct? Do we pray for their prosperity, their holiness, and their salvation? I will only add under this head that with respect to all spiritual objects we are carefully to inquire whether we relish them at all, and whether we relish them for themselves, for the excellence which they possess, or for some apprehended benefit which may be derived from them to ourselves. Secondly, real religion is always accordant with the dictates of reason enlightened by revelation. By this I intend that it is not on the one hand a mere result of passion, affection, or impulse, as in every case of enthusiasm, and that it is not on the other the result of mere philosophy or the decisions of human reason unenlightened by revelation, as is the case with the professed natural religion of deists. The good conscience of a good man is, on the one hand, purged from these dead works, and on the other, exercises such a control over all the affections as to direct their various operations steadily towards that which the scriptures have pronounced to be true and right. Religion, in the scriptural sense, is a reasonable, not a casual, nor an instinctive surface. Man acts in it not as an animal under the mere impulse of animal affections, not as a subject of mere passion, not as a creature of mere imagination, nor as a mere subject of all these united, but as a rational being in whom the understanding governs, and in whom the affections only aid, animate, and obey. There are Christians in profession whose religion seems to be nothing but a compound of mere impulses and affections. There are others whose religion appears to be little else beside a cold, heartless collection of propositions or doctrines quietly lying side by side in the understanding without any influence on the heart or on the life. In the religion of the gospel, the heart is plainly made the great essential, but it is the heart under the steady direction and rational control of the understanding. Real Christianity is the energy or active power of the soul, steadily directed to that which is believed to be right, and thus directed to it merely because it is right. That which is aimed at is loved and pursued because of its rectitude, admitted on satisfactory and solid evidence. From this source, the renewed man is furnished with important evidence of his sanctification. If he finds in himself a steady disposition to learn as far as possible the true import of the doctrines and precepts of the gospel, and in this manner the real nature of his own duty, 
If he loves moral rectitude in such a degree as anxiously to inquire what it is, and if, when he has learned what it is, he is disposed to yield to proof and conviction and pursue his duty, because it is seen to be his duty, he may justly be satisfied that he is really renewed. But if, on the contrary, he is accustomed to obey the casual impulses of feeling and imagination, if he is disposed to think highly of passages of Scripture, not because they are the Word of God, or are excellent in themselves, declaring important truths or enjoining important duties, but because they have come into his mind suddenly, accidentally, and without any forethought of his own, if he is inclined to prize such texts more than others, or more than he prized the same text before, if he is disposed to think highly of sudden starts of feeling or thoughts and purposes unexpectedly coming into the mind and to regard them as produced by an extraordinary divine agency and therefore to value them highly as peculiar tokens of the favor of God and as authoritative and safe guides to his own duty, if he is fond of indulging a lively imagination about the things of religion, of forming to himself awful views concerning the world of misery and the suffering of its inhabitants, or bright and beautiful visions of the light and splendor of heaven and the glory of its inhabitants, or charming images of the person of Christ as beautiful in form, ravishing in aspect, and surrounded with radiance, or as meek, gentle, looking with compassion, or smiling with complacency on himself, if he is inclined to rest on these feelings and impulses as the peculiar foundations of his hope, consolation, and confidence, or as any foundations of hope and confidence at all, I will not say that such a man is not renewed, but I will say that he trusts without evidence and builds upon sand." I will further say that he is miserably deluded with regard to this great subject, that he feeds on wind and not on food, and that by directing his eye to false objects from which he never can derive any real good, he loses the golden privilege of gaining solid support and evangelical comfort from those sources whence alone God has intended they should be derived. The Thirdly, the prevalence of a meek and humble disposition furnishes the mind with good reason to believe that it is renewed. The natural spirit of man is universally proud and irritable. No part of the human character is more predominant, more pleasant to ourselves, more deceitful, or more universal. At the same time, as we might expect, none is so much cherished by the mind. A great part of the perfection aimed at and delineated by the wise men of heathen antiquity was formed of pride. Stoical pride is proverbial. The love of glory, according to Cicero, was a virtue or real excellence of character. Devoted as we are to the indulgence of pride, it is perhaps of all passions the most unworthy and mischievous the most irritable, the most unforgiving, the most wrathful, the most contentious, and the most oppressive. The world has been filled by it with private quarrels and public wars, with wretchedness at the fireside, with turmoil in the neighborhood, and with bloodshed and desolation in the great scenes of national activity. It has brought forth the tyrant and nursed the conqueror. The religion of the gospel has laid the axe at the root of this passion. Christ, the glorious author of this religion, has exhibited in his own life a character perfectly contrasted to pride in every degree and in every exercise. 
This character he is beautifully expressed in that memorable and delightful declaration, subjoined to the most consoling invitation and the happiest tidings ever published to the children of men. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. In conformity with this declaration, his whole life was a life of meekness and humility. In conformity with this declaration also, he has everywhere in the gospel, preferred as was remarked in one of the discourses on his character, the meek and lowly virtues to the magnanimous and splendid ones. He has inculcated them oftener, has dwelt on them more, has enjoined them in stronger terms, and has made them in a high degree indispensable. As these virtues then are such a prominent and essential part of Christianity, it will be easily seen that they must be found in every Christian. So long as pride is the predominating spirit of man, he must know, if acquainted at all with himself, that he is not sanctified. A great part of the influence of the spirit of sanctification is employed in annihilating this haughty self-dependent disposition. One of the first perceptible effects of this influence is the humility of the gospel. A humble mind is, of course, meek, little disposed to feel provocations deeply, uninclined to construe them in the worst manner, and still more indisposed to requite them with wrath and revenge. What is thus the natural result of the Christian spirit is continually strengthened by the general disposition of the Christian to obey the precepts and to follow the example of his master, both conspiring to enforce on him the same conduct in the most powerful manner. He knows that Christ has required the same mind which was in himself, and peculiarly in this respect, to be in all his followers. He sees the beauty and glory of the disposition in his great example. He knows that nothing without it will render him acceptable to God or qualify him for admissions into his kingdom. With these mighty motives in view, it seems impossible that this disposition, once begun in the soul, should fail to manifest itself in some good degree by its genuine and happy effects. The evidence which it furnishes to the mind of its renovation is twofold. Its former dispositions are weakened, and the new ones have begun to prevail in their place. Pride is enfeebled in all its operations, the propensity to wrath is lessened in humility and meekness, not an insensibility to injuries, but a serene quiet of soul under them, have, like beautiful twin sisters, entered the mind and made it their permanent habitation. He who finds this his own state possesses desirable evidence that he is a Christian. Fourthly, without a prevailing spirit of gentleness towards others, we cannot have sound and scriptural evidence of our Christianity. This is a kindred subject to the last. The natural character of man is rough, revengeful, and unforgiving, disposed to overbear, to carry his measures by force and violence, to listen little to the wishes and reasons of others, and to arrogate to himself and his concerns an importance which all impartial persons see does not belong to them. To this spirit also the gospel is directly and equally opposed. It enjoins everywhere a spirit of gentleness, moderation, and forgiveness towards all men. Its author was wonderfully distinguished by softness and sweetness of disposition. He never intruded on the rights of others. He used no force, 
nor even wrought a single miracle to vindicate his own. He neither cried nor lifted up nor caused his voice to be heard in the streets. In the garden he healed the ear of Malchus, and on the cross he prayed for his murderers. At the same time he required all his followers to possess and exhibit the same gentle and forgiving disposition, on pain of not being otherwise themselves forgiven. Nay, he has forbidden them to ask forgiveness of God upon any other condition. The servant of the Lord saith, Paul must not strive but be gentle towards all men. The existence and influence of this part of the Christian character are especially seen in cases where we have been injured and towards those who have injured us. If besides quietly receiving injuries we exercise a benevolent spirit towards those who have done them, if we can lay aside all thoughts of retaliation, if we can show them kindness, if we can rejoice in their prosperity, if we can feel and relieve their distresses, if we can heartily pray for their well-being, we have good reason to conclude that the same mind which was in Christ is also in us. Fifthly, a willingness to perform accompanied by the actual performance of the duties required by the gospel is an indispensable evidence of Christianity. There are multitudes of persons in the Christian world who appear to place religion greatly, if not wholly in such feelings of the mind, as are rarely or never followed by any of those overt acts of obedience, which are commonly called Christian duties. Their love, contrary to the injunction given by John, appears to exist only in word and in tongue, not in deed, and therefore we have reason to fear, not in truth. We find persons of this character willing to converse much on religious subjects, to dwell on the nature of religious affections, to canvass abundantly the doctrines of the gospel, to explain minutely the nature of its precepts, to expose such tenets of others as they esteem erroneous, to defend strenuously such as they think true, and often to mix with all these things not a little censor of those who differ from them in opinion and character. I will not say that these persons are destitute of religion, but I will say that, so far, they furnish little reason why others should believe them religious. Real religion is ever active and always inclined to do as well as to say. The end for which man was made and for which he was redeemed was that he might do good and actively glorify his Creator. To this end, all the instructions and precepts of the gospel were given. All the blessings of providence, and all the influences of the Spirit of God. All these, therefore, are frustrated, and are without efficacy, where men do not thus act. The business of a Christian is not to say to others, Be warmed and be filled, depart in peace, but to feed and clothe them. This I acknowledge may be done by such as are not Christians, but he who does it not cannot, so far as I see, be a Christian. Active obedience is the only visible fruit by which our religious character is discovered to others, and the fruit by which, in a manner peculiarly happy, it is known to ourselves. To render this evidence of our sanctification satisfactory, it should be, in the first place, uniform. By this I intend that our active obedience should proceed in a manner generally regular through life. I intend that it should not exist by fits and starts, be cold today and warm tomorrow, now zealous, now indifferent, at one time animated by a strong sense of heavenly things, at another absorbed in those of earth. 
at one time charitable, perhaps even to excess, at another withholding more than is meet. And all this according to the rise and prevalence of different natural feelings. The spirit of Christianity is one in its nature and therefore uniform in its operations. These indeed are diversified as the objects which they respect vary. Thus the same disposition sorrows for sin which rejoices in the Holy Ghost and is at peace with itself while it contends with its spiritual enemies. Still, a single character runs through them all, differing indeed in degree but not in kind. Under its influence the life will wear one general aspect. By ourselves, therefore, if we examine, and by others who are attentive to our conduct, it will be seen to be of the same nature and to produce the same effects throughout the progress of life. I do not mean that we shall not backslide or that we shall not have lukewarm, uncomfortable, unprofitable, and unexemplary seasons. These unhappily recur but too often. A field of wheat may grow with different vigor, may at times be checked by cold and stinted by drought, and may at other times, and under the influence of refreshing showers and kindly seasons, flourish with strength, verdure, and beauty. Still it will always be a field of wheat and not of tares and darnel. Secondly, this obedience must for the same man be universal. By this I intend that it must extend a light to all those duties which immediately respect God, our fellow creatures, and ourselves. Real virtue, or the religion of the gospel, never exists by house. There is no such thing as being pious and not benevolent, or being benevolent and not pious, or being both and not self-governed. Religion in this sense is the spirit of obedience to God and regards all His commands alike. If then we would derive from our obedience that satisfactory evidence of our Christianity which it is capable of furnishing, we should examine ourselves concerning our whole conduct and inquire how far it wears this universal character. We should inquire diligently whether we regularly and steadily employ ourselves at all proper seasons in the worship of God, in reading the scriptures, in communion with Christians, in communion with our own hearts, in watching, striving, and praying against our own lusts within and our enemies without, in overcoming the world, the flesh, and the devil, in resisting especially the sins which most easily beset us, in raising our thoughts and affections to heavenly objects, and endeavoring effectually to make in the present life preparation for eternity. Universally, we should inquire whether we live always in the fear, love, and service of God, with the spirit of dependence, confidence, submission, contentment, and gratitude. Among the duties to which we are summoned by the gospel, those which we owe immediately to our fellow creatures and to ourselves are there exhibited as being of very high and indispensable importance. They are everywhere insisted on in the plainest, strongest, and most affecting manner, are commended, urged, enjoined, and promised a reward from the beginning to the end of the Bible. At the same time, the neglect and the violation of them are condemned in the severest terms and threatened under the most glowing images with the severest punishment. Who, says the psalmist, shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. 
that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not, he that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh a reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. If you forgive men their trespasses, said our Savior to his disciples, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. The servant who owned ten thousand talents to his Lord had his debt readily forgiven. But when he oppressed his fellow servant, his Lord delivered him over to the tormentors till he should pay the debt. If any man will not work, neither let him eat. If any provide not for his own and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith. It is worse than an infidel. Be not deceived, says Paul, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed, says David, is he that considereth the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. And what may serve, instead of a volume upon this subject, Christ seated on the throne of final judgment will, as he declares, say to them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit a kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye ministered to me. And inasmuch as ye did it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye did it unto me. To them on the left hand he will also say, Depart, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was in hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. And inasmuch as ye did it not to the least of these, my brethren, ye did it not to me. From these passages of Scripture it will be seen irresistibly that the duties of these two classes are, in the eye of God, of incalculable importance and are indispensable to the Christian character and to the attainment of salvation. Let it not be supposed for a moment, however, that I intend to prefer these duties to those which immediately respect God. Piety certainly holds the first place in a virtuous character, but no man loves God who does not love his fellow men, and control his own passions and appetites. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without good works is dead also. He that taketh not his cross, and followeth after me, is not worthy of me. There is one point of view in which these duties more effectually evince the Christian character and prove the reality of our religion than most of those which are classed under the name of piety. It is this. They ordinarily demand a greater degree of self-denial. 
A man may ordinarily practice the visible duties of piety without any serious sacrifice of his worldly inclinations. He may read the scriptures and teach them to his children. He may attend the worship of God in his family and in the sanctuary. He may be present in private religious assemblies. He may converse much and often on religious subjects. He may be very zealous about all these duties. He may commune at the table of Christ. He may preach the gospel. Yet instead of crossing his inclinations or denying himself, he may feel that he is purchasing a Christian character at a cheap rate, that he is securing to himself the best friends, that he is opening an easy way to distinction, to influence, and in the end to wealth, and that he is upon the whole making in this manner a very gainful bargain. Nay, he may in this manner more easily than in any other quiet his own conscience, persuade himself that he is a Christian, feel satisfied that he has a title to eternal life, and thus while he thinks he is performing his duty, be only seeking for the pleasure found in these things, pleasure which, though derived from sacred objects, is merely natural, and differs in nothing important from that which is furnished by pleasant food, fine weather, or a beautiful landscape. But when a man is called to resist his passions and appetites, when he is required to be humble, meek, patient, forgiving, just, sincere, merciful, sober, chaste, and temperate, when he is required to communicate his property liberally to the poor, the stranger and the public, and practically to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. He is required, of course, to sacrifice the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He is required to give up his pride, vanity, ambition, anger, avarice, and sensuality. These darling inclinations, which constitute what is called in the scriptures the love of the world, together with all the objects in which they are pampered, he is obliged to yield up to the love of God. Nothing more strongly evinces the sincerity of any professions and the fact that they are followed by serious self-denial. Accordingly, the scriptures have placed peculiar stress upon self-denial as evidential of the genuineness of a Christian profession. If any man will be my disciple, said her Savior, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If any man will save his life, he shall lose it. If any man will lose his life for my sake, he shall find it. Go and sell all that thou hast, said he to the young ruler, and give to the poor, and come and follow me, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Love not the world, says John, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. When therefore we find the love of the world actually prevailing and clearly manifested in the life and conversation of persons who make a profession of religion, the evidence of their piety, of whatever nature it may be, must be exceedingly diminished in the eye of sober charity. Whatever zeal they may discover in attending upon public or private worship, however well they may converse upon religious subjects, whatever feelings they may discover in such conversation, and whatever bright discoveries they may seem to enjoy concerning the mercy or glory of God or the love and excellence of Christ, is still they are greedy of gain, absorbed in the world, peevish, discontented, wrathful, slothful, sensual, unfeeling, vain of their attainments, uncharitable, particularly if they are eagerly engaged in the pursuit of place, power, popularity, and fame, 
and more particularly still if they refuse to give to the poor, or give leanly and grudgingly, or deny aid to others in other distresses, there will be little reason left to believe them children of God. How can these persons expect Christ to say at the final judgment, I was an hungered and ye gave me meat, I was a stranger and ye took me in, naked and ye clothed me, sick and ye visited me? How can ye say, ye did it unto the least of these my brethren? Were he on earth, and should tell them, as he told the young ruler, Go and sell all that ye have, and give to the poor? Would they not go away sorrowful? Would they not feel that even to have treasure in heaven upon these conditions would be a hard bargain? There have been, there are still, multitudes of mankind, and it is to be feared that in this land and at the present time the number is not small, of those who intend to go to heaven with a cheap religion, a religion in which the love of the world is made to harmonize with the love of the Father. This religion consists of feelings, views, discoveries, conversation about these and other religious subjects, and zeal in attending upon external religious duties. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? It is easy for any man who thinks that he is loved by God to love him in turn, but this is not that love of God which he requires. The feelings and views which do not prompt us to virtuous conduct are of no value. If we would prove ourselves to be Christians, we should then diligently ask ourselves whether we aim at being strictly just, sincere, and faithful, whether we actually show kindness to all men, whether what friends or enemies, strangers or neighbors, whether we do good and lend hoping for nothing again. Whether we befriend and promote public, useful, and charitable designs, employing both our substance and efforts, as either may be needed. Whether we love the souls of others, oppose their sins, and promote in them reformation and piety. And whether we are watchfully sober, chaste, temperate, diligent in our callings, and active in our opposition to every worldly lust.